0: Welcome to the Community Development Podcast. A podcast dedicated to community development practice and approaches, sharing our learning and connecting the workforce. My name is Russell. And welcome to another episode recorded during lockdown, um, as uh, as many of the recent ones have. Uh, and I have the pleasure of the company of Nick Andrews. How are you, Nick?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Russell. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. And we're, we're, I suppose we're only a very recent connection for each other. And we're going to touch on some of the work that you've invited me to be part of with uh, what's called a smallest beautiful network. But you're a community social worker but background and training, and now find yourself at Swansea University. And as we were chatting and you mentioned your community social work background, there was a blog that hadn't long crossed my, my path um, by somebody from Camden in London called Becca Dove. And it's a great read and I've sent it to you, where she talks about, um, so involved in kind of early help with families. And she says her focus in Camden uh, is on community and is to try and make sure the families have someone to watch over them not when, or indeed because professionals feel worried, but someone to be there in the good times and someone to turn to in the dark and difficult moments, letting them know the world is okay. And it's a great phrase here. From the professional's point of view, we are joining a family support network, often which includes a community group or organisations, many of the ones that you know are part of your network, as extra temporary scaffolding, not to dismantle or reassemble, or worse yet, ignore what is already there. I really like that. And you'd mentioned community social work. This talks a lot about that, from, from that perspective
1: because at the heart of what you've just shared ross it's beautiful that's a beautiful quote it's this importance of relationships and also of appreciation and valuing people and really at the heart of social work, surely that's you know the and this idea i think i've said to you before about kinship really that we belong to each other a, and and it's how we can work collectively together to make the world a better place and that's always been my take really and so when i was a community social worker in the 90s there was very little bureaucracy and um lot of my practice was built around relationships and responsive emergent approaches to development. Opportunities arose, we call it like facilitated serendipity really. So you're developing something, but you didn't have a massive project plan or performance indicators and targets to to drive your performance. And and I suppose that's the thing that's worried me over the last oh, more than Two decades, the increasing managerialist approaches to social work and social care practice, and so the quantification of everything, and which has actually diminished the importance of relationships.
0: And again, I'm going to simplify things here, and, and then we will be other alternative views. But to my mind, from what I know and have read about how community development work and community work evolved out of some of the social work approaches um, in the late 60s into the 70s, I do wonder whether community development has also adopted. Uh, or certainly hasn't maybe challenged robustly enough some of the managerialism that has come in via some of the programs of, of, of sponsored community development work or supposedly community development work. There's a, a parallel there as well, mm. and that's that's something we've we've touched on with this podcast a few times. Beatrice runs university mm. now. You talk a lot about storytelling. You talk a lot about relationships, kinship, lovely words. So, what is it you're involved in in a, in a professional context these days?
1: So I was actually, I transferred over to the university and helped build bridges really between research and practice uh, and uh, fancy word knowledge mobilization, they call it in, in, in academia. But it really is around building bridges between research and practice so that practice is informed by research, but also research is shaped and informed by practice and the two worlds often live separately so part of my job has been around how do we bridge the gap between those two worlds and um, so I've been exploring all the different ways that we go about knowledge mobilization But of course, it comes back to exactly what makes good community work or what makes good social work it's about people relationships it's around valuing each other and then c- collective dialogue really and um and exploring together rather than slavishly following some predetermined program. I developed something called the Developing Evidence Enriched Practice Program. There's a whole mantra around evidence-based practice. which tends to be top-down, you see. The idea is the experts are the academics. They come up with the recommendations and then they tell everyone else what to do, really. Horton and Paolo Freire would say, really. They don't mind the expert knowledge as long as the experts don't start telling us what to do. And I suppose that's what's been really um, important to me in terms of how people engage with knowledge. But one of the areas of, of work that's come across is how we evaluate. How do we evaluate the work we do? And um, part of my work has been fortunate to link with some small community organisations. For example, AC Lee in Cardiff or Kim Inspire up in Flintshire or Care a rural older people's project in Pembrokeshire. And these little organisations are all doing their best to make the world a better place, and they're doing it in their own particular way. But they've all been subject to almost being dismissed by larger organisations because they can't engage with the bigger regional planning sort of requirements. And because they're small, they're often seen as amateur. And also, um, they don't have a voice in big sort of decision-making sort of panels. And also, when, when it comes to what success looks like, they all say it's all very that's a very elusive thing, really. And it's often so it's imposed, often performance frameworks. I know communities first, you might want to talk a bit about that, Russell, but is that people decide what good looks like. And that's a really dangerous thing. And they also say, these are the things you're going to have to achieve. These are the targets. You've got to plan everything in advance and have it all set out. And then you sort of tick the boxes as you go along. And they're all saying that's not the way development works. And um, with a focus on proving rather than improving, it pushes us towards gaming, really, and not being honest, and not being a learning organisation.
0: You mentioned ACE in Cardiff, and Dave Horton from ACE joined this podcast about eighteen months ago. And I learned through them, and you know, this again, this is great. You talk about the experts and the limits that experts kind of need to impose on themselves. I've done a bit of work around evidencing outcomes and, and and some of the stuff that you've referred to there. What was great for me was to to learn from ACE about a completely new methodology that I was unaware of, but was quite. You know, really kind of appealed to me because I'm a great believer in the power of stories. You know, I've heard yeah. some wonderful stories over the years, I've heard some harrowing stories over the years working in and with communities. And it's called Most Significant Change, and I wasn't particularly aware of it. And ACE have begun to use that. And as we were chatting, that was something you've talked about. And I know a, a project, uh, environmental woodland project up in the Ronda Valleys, uses that as a methodology as well. And it's about giving people voice, and it does seem to uh, I'm not sure prioritize is the right word, but it seem, certainly seems to acknowledge the value of people's voice and the and the role that
1: relationships have. Very much so. To me, it goes back to one of the uh, uh, quotes attributed to Einstein not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that be, can be counted counts. And it, so it really challenges this idea that you can always measure things in metrics. You know, a lot of little community organizations, you these distance travel tools, you know, they these outcome stars or results-based accountability. And they box people in, you see. And um, I came across most significant change. I don't can't remember how I came across it originally, but it, it's, a, it's a methodological approach to evaluation with a strong focus on learning. And it um, comes from complex community development, a guy called Rick Davis, who did a PhD in Swansea University, who now lives in Cambridge. But he, um, he was studying the evaluation of complex community development in Bangladesh. And he found, of course, a lot of the work in good community development is so emergent and organic and iterative. It's very hard to know in advance what success is going to look like. It's much better, he yeah. says, to look backwards rather than plan forward. You can spend weeks and months planning forward, but actually the most effective learning is reflecting backwards and as you go along. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The yeah. other thing he found is that if you want to engage in learning, because that's really one of the most important things about evaluation, this idea that, and I do like the sort of little mantra, we should be focused on improving, not proving, because the minute you focus on proving, you stifle learning and then you start gaming and then that's not helpful to anyone really. So it's that focus on learning, on improving and of course the most powerful way to do that for human beings is through story We're story we make sense of the world through narrative very pratchett he says we think the stories are shaped by people in fact it's the other way around and that is a really important point uh, you know the idea that it's through narrative and sharing and talking together around narrative and any anthropologist will tell you this that's how humans make sense of the world so why are we not using story? in our approaches to evaluation, why are we relying almost solely on numbers and metrics and key performance indicators, which don't really tell us a lot, especially for learning.
0: And that image of people around a campfire or on a journey or road trip or whatever, imparting stories with one another is almost a very primal one as well. It's very Mm. innate, isn't it? I mean, I know Margaret Atwood talks about stories as being part of who we are, and almost in a a sense that it's non-negotiable. We couldn't dispense with that part of the human character. If we wanted to, it's just it's just there, almost in the
1: DNA. Yeah, And also, just quickly with stories, it's not just about how we learn by them. Just to have your story heard by another person in itself is really validating and important. So there's value in stories for the person being listened to, for the person receiving the story, the story gatherer, and then the people who are talk and, and share the stories together with a focus on learning, and that really is at the heart of most significant change. Gathering stories, appreciating people, sharing, talking about stories, and then sharing what we learned and feed that back, this really important feedback loop to the people who've shared their stories. It's actually quite a simple approach, but it's not simplistic. It, you know, it goes, it goes deep, really, and it gets to the real heart of what matters to people. So it starts with the process of story gathering, and you gather these stories from the front line. So in any development project, It wants to gather those personal narratives. It doesn't matter whether you're the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Every story is important. So you want diverse stories. And um, you ask a very simple, it's a semi-structured story. So you start with this very open question. Over the last, um, say, six months, as a result of your involvement in whatever project you're talking about, what good or bad changes have come about? And you have to help people to tease. The focus is very much on change. What's changed? And it can be a change in your attitude, a change in the way people work, the change in the way other people work. So it's important that you tease out. This. It doesn't matter what it is, it's, but it is something that's changed. And then once people have gathered a little list of what they think's changed as a result of whatever they've been doing, you ask them this very personal question. You say, "Okay, out of all of those changes." Which is the most significant change to you personally? And why is that then? And some people really struggle with this. This one, well, I've never thought about that before. And so well, let's have a think about it now. And then, so people then have to critically reflect on their own understanding of what they're doing. And then they come up with, well, actually, I feel more confident now that I, I've built my confidence through my involvement. And then why is that then? Well, it's because of X, Y, and Z. So you end up with this lovely personal narrative. And personal narratives, which Carl Rogers, one of my heroes of person-centered counseling, says that which is, most personal is most universal. So, personal narratives are really useful to other people. People can engage with, with the personal. So, that's a really important point. So, you've got this um, most significant change from the person. And then you ask them these three simple questions really. You say, OK, regarding your most significant change, can you tell me what was it like before? What's it like now? And what do you think brought about that change? So you get some analysis then, and that's really helpful too. And then you ask them, say, okay, thank you very much for sharing your story. Can we give it a snappy title? Because all good stories have a good title, don't they, as we know. So then you end up, and they're often very short. They'd be half a page. It could be a page, but no more. They're not like massive case studies. You have a set of these little stories, these most significant change stories, which can then be gathered together and then used. And in the um, MSC process, what happens is you you get a panel, what they call a most significant change uh, story selection panel, and their job is to to look at the stories and talk and think and learn from them collectively. And the people in that panel are usually decision makers. So, going back, you mentioned ACE. They had people from services from their funders. They had the Cardiff CVS, whatever they're called. So they had people who had influence on the organisation. They had board members. And we just picked 10 stories. You don't need a lot of these stories to get learning. And um, you end up sitting in a circle, and then you read out, say, 10 most significant change stories. And then you have to explore together collectively, out of all of these stories, which is the most significant story. So again, people are going, well, I don't know. I think this one is, I think this is the most significant story, says somebody in social services. Then somebody from health says, well, I don't think so. I think this is the most significant story. And then you get the dialogue going. And part of MSC, we've been working with folk in Cambridge University in their Faculty of Education around dialogue, learning, the idea that best learning is through talking and thinking together. And and so this most significant change process really supports that, this idea of exploring differences of opinion, encouraging people to agree and to disagree and learning from that. So that's what happens in the process. And there are all sorts of ways you can strengthen that dialogic sort of activity. And what you find is then the panel, after a bit of wrestling together, they have to select one story. And then what they have to do is produce a feedback report. And in that report, it's quite straightforward again. They say, well, this is the story we picked. We think this is the most significant story. And this is why we picked it. So you get a, a very personal perspective from the the influencers and decision makers and then they say and this is what we've learned from all of the stories from talking about all the stories so it's not like a competition to get the best story it's through choosing the most significant story they've had to learn from all of the stories and compare and contrast them so so they they basically say this is the story we've chosen this is why we've chosen it this is what we've learned from all the stories and this is what we think we need to do about it This is the implications of what we've discussed. So you develop a very short little report, again, on no more than two sides of A4, and you can send that report back then to the people who shared their stories, and you can share the report higher up as well to a a higher level And if you want to, if you're reporting to Welsh Government, for example, or a regional partnership board or something. It can be a tiered process of story gathering, story selection, and a feedback process, and that really is most significant change in a nutshell.
0: Quite. I've been doing some training in the last year or so with some employability programs um, and it's around their use of storytelling. So this particularly resonates with me. And there's a quote that I draw from uh, an environmentalist, conservationist, called Peter Forbes, and he talks about how stories create community and that they enable us to see through the eyes of others. But moreover, they open mm. us to their claims. What's most significant change allows, yep. but stories allow, is that that director of social services, for example, And that service user to meet on a bit more of a an equal level. I'm not saying it is equal necessarily. I'm sure there are still aspects of power that 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 one or other retains, but that nonetheless it's a little bit more equal, and we should always aspire to it being more equal. But there's some sense of a bit more of equality there, whereby actually one's claims can be seen through the eyes, and it cuts both ways. That service user can understand. The, the forces and the dynamics and the, maybe the restrictions and limitations that, that the
1: director is, is under as well. And I think that's important. And what Rick says, it's the whole aim really of most the change. It's a bit like getting a shoal of fish to align better because sometimes people think they're aligned. So you say, oh, I'm talking about prevention and well-being. And you are, but of course, health and social services and communities see it all differently. And you see that in the classic, don't you? In the health, see um, social prescribing. They've got all that in their mind, but that can be just double Dutch to the communities, and and actually quite offensive. Really, I know you talked to Sue Denman in in um, care where they're doing a lot of community development from the community, by the community, for the community, and they've sort of got the social prescribers knocking on their door and and, and there's a, a, a dissonance. You'd basically Google most significant change technique or, or Rick Davis or his organisation Mandy, which is M-A-N-D-E, and there's also a, a summary of most event change on the Better Evaluation website. So again, if you Google those terms, you'll, you'll find it quite easily. It's just And Rick is a really affable and approachable guy, so if people wanted to talk to Rick directly about the work, he's been very supportive of what we've been doing. In Wales, quite happy to talk to people freely and, uh, about about the method.
0: Yeah, as you say, simple but not simplistic.
1: Yeah,
0: results based accountability. I mean, I...
1: Ah.
0: <laughs> I've always been tempted to <laughs> to set up a, a sort of swear box whenever somebody mentions is... it. Apparently it's me mind, so I'd be skinned. But that wasn't simple.
1: No, it was simplistic. It was reductionist. One of my favourite guys I love is Ian Gil- Ian McGilchrist. He's a psychiatrist and. He wrote this lovely book, The Master and His Emissary, about the two sides of the brain and how the left side is all around control, predict. And it's useful for certain things in life that we need that. But actually, the right side of the brain is all around the unexpected, the emergent, the great creative things of the the history of humanity. And he says that's been diminished by a focus on things like results-based accountability, which are all based on logic and predictability. And he says, actually, most of life is unpredictable and uncontrollable, and everything's connected to everything else, so you can't reduce anything to anything. Again, I'd encourage people to look up his work. Yeah. I'm going off on a tangent now, but but he does link, because some of this dialogue, we really do want to, to build the dialogue between the health, and social care people who've got this agenda really to to engage better with communities for two reasons really one which is very virtuous we're saying we do actually value communities and and realize that people live in context of communities but of course they've got this other agenda well we've got really limited resources and if the community can help us then we need that but there is a danger there always a danger isn't there that it's that latter that is the one that dominates the idea here's a resource we can tap into it doesn't cost much and it'll save us some money, really. And, and there's a real danger. So, over the last um, couple of years, there have been two strands of work which we're going to try to bring together. And you're involved in that, Russell. We've got the movement around social prescribing, which is often very led by health services. Uh, last year, I, uh, the school that I work for allocated a small capacity building to a group of people working based in the University of South Wales, really, with Carolyn Wallace, around developing a social prescribing network, which was very successful. And it's led to now a thing called the Wales School for Social Prescribing, which you can look up on the web. It's very focused on doing social prescribing well, and getting some kind of measure of the effectiveness of social prescribing. But whilst this strand of work has been developing, I've been fortunate to have connections with small community organisations who have often worked in isolation of each other, but have sort of come together in a small group called Small is Beautiful. So, for example, it includes AC Lee Carrey in Cardiff. It includes Solver Care in Pembrokeshire. It includes Kim Inspire, which is a mental health organisation up in Flintshire. And we had an event about 18 months ago where we brought these representatives from these little community organisations together. And it was really interesting around this agenda of prevention and well being. And are you being listened to or are you being used by the, the powers that be, really? And this little group is now sort of called the smallest beautiful group. And they came up with three things. They said often, in a world where everything's commissioned regionally and everything's big and highbrow, we don't get a voice. Or if we get a voice, it's, it's represented by, for example, a WCVA it's, it's, who are supposed to represent us. But of course they don't because we're all different and we're all quite unique. So we don't get a voice. When we do get a voice, people don't see us as credible because we're small, so we're not very clever. And thirdly, when they do engage with us, we actually do get some resources to, to build our projects. Definitions of quality... What we define as quality is not what they define as quality. So we need to get a better measure of what success looks like in different contexts. So this little group, quite active, and um, they really want a voice. And they also say community capacity is great, but it takes resources and we, we, we need resources and we need funding and we need to be taken seriously. So um, these two activities, we're hoping to bring them together, aren't we, Russell? We've got um, an initial meeting to sound out the, the different perspectives and try and get some of that dialogue learning in place. I don't know if you've got any comments on them. This
0: lack of of voice, again, whether it's real or perceived, I think is a worry because I think in in certain ways that whole agglomeration model that probably Mm. hijacked economic planning and thinking 30, 40 years ago, arguably, is probably also hijacking forms of social policy then in in this country, uh, be that Wales or the UK, around regional, regional collaboration, comes back to that podcast that we did around community re- development responses and approaches to dealing with the pandemic. So we went up to to up in Bangor and without, with very little planning, with very little forethought, certainly navel gazing, no setting of terms of reference and contracts and all of that, people rallied, self-organised and are meeting the essential needs. Now, like I said, coming back to this issue around this most si- significant change and looking at people's experiences through a storytelling narrative, one of the things that they were, were are to is creating those dependencies. Now, I suppose what's greater about the here and now, and maybe looking at social prescribing in terms of lockdown, in terms of dealing with the pandemic, is that I think it's showing the state is dealing with population level interventions and planning and crisis management. But actually, it's communities responding and organising themselves, community organisations certainly, and and certain you know public service provision as well. Clearly, are meeting and organising at a local level, and it's almost a conscious conscious rejection of through necessity as much as choice those more agglomeration approaches, and I think there's something going on there. I'm not entirely sure. I know what it is yet. But I think there's definitely something happening where Small is Beautiful is the title, but actually Small is also more responsive. Small is more tuned into the waxing and waning that's happening at community level at the moment, be that communities of space and geography or of interest and shared characteristics. Because clearly, I think some of the, the lessons being learned from the pandemic is that certain groups are being impacted much more by the virus on a clinical level but also in terms of the you know the the, the broader Mm. impact of it than others so there's definitely something going on there and I think this is an opportunity one doesn't wish to dismiss the impact of it or or to be crass in any way or opportunistic but actually I think there is something happening here that allows us an opportunity to actually sometimes a localized response yes it's messier if you're in that commissioning seat or if you're that director level it does look messy and it's hard to know definitively what's going on from day to day but that actually if we give it some time and some space to happen if we then go and collect the stories and most significant changes that potentially that that methodology we'll find that it did have an impact very much so i think that's potentially quite empowering for us
1: the small and the local allow for relational and responsive ways of working don't they and it's interesting in health and in social care They've discovered an approach to um, community nursing in the Netherlands called Beertsorg. And basically, it's around self-organizing nurses. So instead of having a huge sort of micromanagement of nurses to, to bring out the best in them, they've given them agency autonomy and they work on the patch locally with local communities. And they do what's needed on the day. And it sounds so obvious and so simple. It's increased the motivation of the staff. It's improved outcomes and it's reduced costs in the Netherlands. So there are some pilots going on in Wales now where they're um, experimenting with this. But that way of organising professionals would dovetail beautifully with local communities because the idea is they don't exploit or use the local communities or refer to local communities. They become part of the local community and work with the local community. And then you get genuine co-production, but it's not based on um, transactional process it's based on relationships it's based on yes. relationships and humanity isn't it and that's going back to what i said right at the start is the way we used to work in the 1990s when i was a community social worker and i i didn't like the paperwork i had then so I, and I remember i had a very good team manager who just let me get on with it. so i'd take the forms we had then i'd cut them up with scissors and make my own forms and then photocopy them on the on the gp's photocopier or something. So and then care plans were just letters you know dear mrs smith i've been to you had a nice chat and we've agreed this this and this here's my phone number or i'll see you in Tuffins on thursday or something and all of that's got lost and i do think there's a real chance now for professionals to work together with communities to co-create and co-value but again it needs the people to resource that as well one of my favorite projects uh, that illustrates the power of what can be done locally when people can do that is is called the Debenham project. It's in Suffolk actually, but it's a, it's a dementia friendly community for want of a better word. And um, they didn't have a grand project plan. They've started small uh, built on relationships. They've developed a support service for carers of people with dementia and it runs on a on a cost of about eight thousand pound a year, and it, it supports this little town. And um, Lyndon Jackson, who's one of the driving forces behind it, he has this thing called the four mile rule. He says sometimes people come and see what we do. They well, first of all they want to see where our project plan is, and they say, say well, we haven't got one. It's all done on relationships, kindness, and cake, chocolate cake. He says, uh, but then he says they want us to replicate it or scale it up, and he says it's not This is we have this thing called the four mile rule. People in Debenham are really interested in Debenham and that's it. You can't duplicate this, but you can take those principles and, and those principles, a bit like DNA, can grow differently in different places, but there are certain key principles and relationships and kindness and humanity at the heart of it all.
0: Yes, and again, that word kinship, isn't it, that I've become a bit more allured to in the last couple of weeks at your suggestion, just looking at some of the stuff on YouTube around the work of Gregory Boyle in America. With, with gangs and, and that ability to look past tattoos gang behaviours gang loyalties the certain code and la- codes and languages as well as motifs that are obviously part of that gang culture to be able to look past that and to look at people and he talks a lot about friendship and he talks a lot about co-workers and has got these huge ranges of portfolio of social enterprises as well isn't it and I think what strikes me through listening to him is that where he is scaled up they scaled up but actually where they haven't scaled up because it wouldn't have worked or it would have lost the essence of it. And I think that's I think it's okay to say actually no something isn't going to work elsewhere because it's predicated on this ingredient or this, you know, this aspect of geography or this aspect of demography or something. That's that's okay. I think there's a danger sometimes that we can look to homogenize everything and think, well, stuff is achievable everywhere in the same way or at the same rate.
1: Kinship, yeah. You remind me of the work I've, been, I've done for years, really, with care homes or care services. Because, again, you go in and you have like a staff toilet and then a resident toilet. You say, what's that about then? Is, is the staff toilet the clean toilets? What's the difference with the toilets? But there are some great sort of care homes that turn into what they call like a family model. So you get rid of all of that paraphernalia around service, and it just becomes a home, and, and, and those are lovely. And it'll be the same principle. So when you get a good care home that involves family, staff, residents, working together. It'll be just the same as A.C. be the, It'll be those key human principles that, that are important. And of course, most significant change, because it gathers people's stories about what matters, what's most significant, and it gets people talking and thinking together. These things become really clear. It really brings them to the surface. This is what we're about, really, isn't it? And this is what really matters. And this is where we need to focus our attention. Especially where somebody sat in an office doing that because being designated as the project planner is almost the wrong way to go because it, it you miss the point and going back to Terry Pratchett. People think the stories are shaped by people. In fact, it's the other way around. Like you say, getting health professionals to understand the people in communities and both ways, sharing each other's stories is really powerful. We had another example in West Wales where we're looking at short breaks for carers and the commissioning manager a regional commissioning manager so the most detached person the most person you'd like to vilify for creating such a, a lack of services but she actually started an event by sharing her own testimony of being a carer for her husband who had a stroke within a few minutes you know people were relating to her and seeing her as a person <laughs> not just like a bureaucrat you said really. Went. and i know i did a lovely event in Caridighe on run by the council we had a lot of care home managers come we didn't have any tea and coffee at the start and i said where's the tea and the coffee and they said "Oh." The council have stopped that to save money. So I said, well, we're not starting until you've had tea and coffee. So I said, let's go and find the go-downs the canteen and we'll get the invoice sent to the university or something. But the minute we did that, you had this lo- lovely report. People thought, gosh, I feel appreciated. You you value me, you respect me, and you give me a cup of coffee. And, and I'm actually, I might listen to you now because rather than being sent on training, I think you actually care about us.
0: And those small acts of dissent... I think are really, really important. And I personally think it's okay for you to make those Mm. a little bit, uh, what's the word, performative.
1: You've made a really good point there, because one of the things in the guys in Cambridge say is, um, and it's one of the tools they use really, they say if you really want to stimulate dialogue, one of the best ways is to create what they call provocative statements. So you don't ask questions, you say something slightly outrageous really, because It's a bit like Marmite. They'll either love it or they hate it. But the fact is, by the very fact that you've said it, you create dialogue.
0: So that was Nick Andrews from the Wales School for Social Care Research at Swansea University. Um, Apologies, it ended a bit abruptly. Uh, Unfortunately, my podcasting skills let me down a tad with this episode and some of the audio wasn't really usable, Um, which is a shame because Nick's work, well, more than his work, his, his outlook, his humility, his enthusiasm for people has been one of the highlights of lockdown for me as i said at the outset him and i are only really a a relatively recent connection but anyway you can contact nick on email at n.d.andrews at swansea.ac.uk he's more than happy for you to drop him a line if there's anything that's of interest or relevance to your work Uh, and you can also follow him on twitter not that he's particularly active but maybe you can you can encourage and prompt him into a little bit of uh, interaction uh, on twitter he's at nick and swan nick and swan and the school itself the social care research school is also on twitter wales s s c r so there'll be three s's in the middle there so yeah please leave a comment or like the podcast or any of the others that we've done on apple or the other platforms it all helps with the analytics on these platforms to help bring the podcast to people's attention so yeah until next time thank you very much for listening Thank you for listening to the Community Development Podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at com c o m d e v t podcast. And to support the podcast and help it share learning, connect the workforce, and raise the profile and the merits of community development approaches, why not become a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the CD podcast.